Now, assuming this book was written around 90 A.D., all of the apostles, with the exception of John, have, been, have died. Most of them have been martyred. Apostle Paul over here, let's get Peter or James, they'll straighten us out. As you know, on the island of Patmos. So all these churches are under Roman rule, which means they're also under the Roman pressure to worship the emperors, because that's what you do. That's how you show your loyalty. Uh, these churches in their cities, many of them had, worship false gods. So they're under that pressure. Also, many of these churches were persecuted, and so uh, their, um, their jobs might be at stake. Their livelihood could be at stake. Their very lives could be at stake. And then not only from the pressures without, but also pressures within of false teaching that comes and goes. And there there are people traveling all the time with their new teachings. And that's alluring to people. What's the new latest thing that gets people's attention? And you also have unrepentant sinners in the church that can serve as a source of temptation. And, of course, behind all of that, you have the great nemesis, the enemy, Satan. So these churches are under a lot of pressure, and that's just what church life is. Now, we are very blessed here to not face these, many of these kind of pressures that those churches face. We may face these kind of pressures. They do come and go to different degrees. But the church's existence is threatened. But although the greats are gone, the apostles are gone, Christ is not gone. It's his church. He's the head of the church. And so they are just as well cared for as they always have been because God provides what his people need. And what we have learned in this book is that he walks among the lampstands. The lampstands are the churches that he has, that he has planted, that he has brought to life. And he walks among them and he knows the heartbeat not just of every individual, but churches take on personalities. Churches take on characteristics uh, according to the people that congregate there. And he walks among them and he knows them. He knows all the churches in America. He knows all the churches in Guatemala. He knows all the churches. He's intimately acquainted with all of them, our strengths and our weaknesses. And he cares enough to speak into our lives. And if ever we needed to hear what the Lord said, not only does he speak to us through uh, an earthly perspective as we get the epistles and and the daily events of church, church life, but revelation is from heaven's perspective. It's God looking down at his people and offering his great wisdom. And we have found that some churches have great strengths, some churches have great weaknesses, some are a mix but that God wants his churches to be complete. He wants us to be balanced. He wants us to represent him well in the world. He wants us to love him well. And he wants us to endure and go the distance to never deny his name at whatever the cost. With that said, we're going to look at chapter 3, the first six verses in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. 
Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, a people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You've probably immediately noticed that this is the most severe address that Christ has given to his church. Sardis was a city uh, that was situated in in a very fertile valley. It has a very rich history. Probably its greatest claim to fame was its uh, King Croesus. King Croesus was very, very rich. And he was rich because the river that flowed through this city had a lot of gold in it. And you can get into the Greek mythology that said that's where Midas washed himself and the gold washed into the river. But this king in real life, uh, he set up an empire basically of, of Lydia. And he was very powerful But eventually, his money couldn't buy everything, and the Persians sacked them. And then after that, the Greeks sacked this city a few times. And in 17 AD, it it underwent a catastrophic earthquake. And one of the emperors, I think Tiberius, he rebuilt it. But by the time this letter was written, it had never regained its luster. We see the rebuke here of Christ in this church. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I can just imagine that would be a jaw-dropper. You, have the, you, of all churches, have the reputation of being alive. So they're the they're well-known church, the, the active church, the, the living church. So they have this reputation of being the dynamic church, perhaps the church that everybody would want to visit if they ever went into that area. Uh, No doubt with this kind of reputation that the other churches probably would want to be like this church and to have that kind of reputation. They were talked about. That's what reputations are. You are known for these things. People talk about you on these terms. There's no mention to this church about struggle with doctrine. There's nothing in there about Jezebel or Balaam or the Nicolaitans. There's no talk about a lack of church discipline. I would imagine they were well liked not only among the local Christians, but probably the local citizens in the community. Uh, Very likely they had a lot of good things going for them, all uh, maybe attractive activities, church programs, things that we see in a lot of churches today. It's possible, I don't know, but if they had this kind of reputation and they were well known for that, they may have been a large church with a lot going on. Lots of money, lots of talent, lots of resources. There's just one problem, the Lord says. They are more a reflection of a cemetery 
than the church of the living God. So the reputation for being dynamic is coming by man's assessment. It's coming on a horizontal plane, not from the vertical, not looking down. And when man looks at them, he he approves this church. It's a great church. It's a happening church. They're a live church. There's stuff going on here all the time. But that's not God's assessment. God can see a little better. He, with the piercing eyes and the bright eyes, the the fire coming out of his eyes, he probes a little deeper than we would be inclined to do. He's not fooled so quickly. And what he sees is that they are actually at death's door. He calls them dead. With With the exception of the remnant there, They would be completely dead. So all of this, whatever it is that's giving them this great reputation, it's not real. It's not true. It's not achieving God's purposes. And so we see now in this church at least, this danger of of only going by man's assessment of a popular church or a happening church or that church must be doing something right. Look how many cars are in the parking lot. And they have their own radio program and so forth. And there's more to it than that. This has been a problem with man ever since the beginning. Our tendency to offer our own assessment that perhaps may not be as deeply biblical as it should. So God looks at them and and he finds them Deficient, he finds them incomplete. He finds them dead. Their reputation does not equate the reality of the situation, of their spiritual situation. I'm reminded of a quote by John Wooden, and I've quoted it before, but not, I didn't realize that it came from this guy, if it did, but John Wooden was a, uh, I didn't know who he was because I don't follow basketball, but he was a very devout Christian. He was hailed as the best NCAA coach of all time. So if you're a basketball fan, you probably have heard of him. Uh, he lived to be 99 years old. He had a tremendous impact on all those that he coached for the glory of Christ. But he says, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think of you. That nails what's going on in this church. Other people are probably encouraging this church in countless ways. That's what they're known for, but it's not who they really are. What man sees and what God sees is often not the same. And God wants us to be real. The Bible, if you look at the characters, God does not cover up sin. You get man, warts and all. And that's part of our story. And that's why we need a Savior. It's because we do fall short. And one of our sins is pretending to be something that we're not. And that can even not just be pretending to be cool, But it can even mean pretending to be a Christian or pretending to be godly or pretending to really know and be close to God. And yet all the time, it's just what we are convincing others with, our peers with, and God is not at all convinced. 
He wants us to be real. The truth has been described as that which is reality. That's what makes it true because it's real. You can't deny reality. The truth is important. Being authentic is important. And God wants us to be real. He wants churches to be real. Which means that in any given church, a sign of being healthy is a church that is repenting of sin. Because we're real about our sin. We don't just cover it up and pretend that we're the greatest church in the county because we're up here on the level of being sinless and all the other churches are down here. When's the last time you heard anybody repent in this church? I would say if you don't hear repentance going on in the body, life of a church, whether it's at our services or in our care groups or discipleship or friendships or whatever, that is not a good sign. That's a sign of a church That is dying because repentance keeps us alive through the power of God. But we've struggled with this. I've fallen for it in my Christian life. We struggle with looking at certain people and making assessments that are just wrong. Perhaps the best example of this is in 1 Samuel 16, 6-7, when... Uh, Samuel is looking for a king. He's God's prophet. He's looking for a king to replace King Saul. And you will be familiar with these words. When they came, he looked on, of course, the sons of David. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So you have this guy, Samuel. Now, he's a godly man. He, he thinks uh, in kingdom terms. And he got it wrong. He blew it. He's thinking, surely this is it. And so there were probably people in that day and age thinking, surely this is the church to emulate. Surely we need to do what they are doing so we can also have this great reputation. So what man approves and applauds, God often rejects. And the vice, vice versa is true. What man rejects, God often appoints and chooses. He can see what's real about us and he can see what's fake. So what kind of death are we talking about here? I've, I've not found uh, your works complete in the sight of my God, verse 2. And then verse 4, uh, remember he, he, uh, in the rebuke, there's often something that the other side is doing is not doing wrong. And so we get a little more insight into it. In verse 4 he says, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And so in some way these people are sinning. This church, the leadership, members, group leaders, whatever's going on here, in some way they've soiled their garments, which obviously means there's a lot of impurity here. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of mess. That's the condition, soiled, indicative of a church that's actually not alive but filled with defilement. And yet all those around them think that they are the church to be. And yet, the sin here obviously is not public. 
for somehow they're hiding it. I don't understand the dynamic, but somehow they're hiding it. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of filth. There's a lot of sin, perhaps greed, perhaps pride, perhaps immorality. Somehow they kept it concealed from people. Maybe their success went to their heads. Maybe they thought that, well, because we're so anointed, we can just kind of fudge. Here and there. We see that in today's churches. We see leader after leader after leader that gets to a position of prominence, whether it's a pastor or a worship leader or whatever. They become very popular. They got this great reputation of being anointed. Next thing you know, you're reading an article about them. All this time they were in sin and we didn't know it. They kept it concealed, but in some way they loved the world. There was a remnant there that uh, was not affected, though. We'll talk about that in a minute. God's remnant. What would we do without God's remnant? So they belonged to Christ in name. They were a church in name, but not in reality. And so, in essence, though, they seemed to be very alive physically and spiritually. God's assessment is they are Dead, And the voice of the Lord is calling them out of their graves. The voice of the Lord is calling them to repentance. So you see all the different things that can happen in a church. You see all the, the things that can work against us. Pressures from without, pressures from within, secret sins. So along with sound doctrine and passion, love and perseverance and discipline, a church needs to be real. Church, need, we, we, we just are what we are before the Lord. And part of serving God is owning who we really are. You see, and this can not just work on an individual basis, but become the character of a church. A few people that fake it, and then the next thing you know, you've got a church of a reputation that's one thing, and yet in reality they are not great. So churches can kind of have a life of their own, can't they? they? Just take on their own character, take on their own personality with or without Christ. That's pretty sobering. It's sobering, I think, especially that you know that in America, churches are extremely under a lot of pressure to be this kind of church, to be a happening church, to have this great reputation. Because it's a sign, a guaranteed sign, so we think, of some kind of God's anointing. If you've got a filled parking lot, you even have parking attendants and all these things, they're not wrong in and of themselves, but there is pressure in America that that's the ultimate church. That's what we need to try to be like. So small churches try to be like the bigger churches with standing room only. And so, from our perspective, we look at these things and we make the assumption, yes, God is doing something mighty here. What else could we assume? And yet, in the inner workings, behind the scenes, in people's heart that are running churches, if it's like this church, there's evil. There's sin. It's only in God's grace and mercy that it hasn't been exposed. And I don't know why it hasn't been exposed, although this has been exposed. Christ exposed this church, this happening church. 
See, we make these, assume, these assessments so quickly, too quickly. We just think that, okay, if all out, if the outer workings look good, then all the inner workings must be good as well. And that is a false assumption. I hope they are, and they can be. It can be a sign of a solid core of real believers, but it's not necessarily true. What a message that we need today. And the Bible is constantly warning us that what you see is not always what it is. Jesus spoke to this when he spoke to Jewish leaders who were hypocrites. And he says, you look like this on the outside, but your heart is rotting on the inside. I'll give you an example in Isaiah 29, 13. Because this people drew near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by man. So there's a perfect example of people. They're saying the right things. They're singing at the top of their lungs. All the while their hearts are not honoring God. So we can't always figure that out. But God knows it. And we make the wrong assumption that that beautiful voice or that beautiful gift being used by God means this person is close to God. So by the look and the sound, they are. In real life, they are not. And Jesus addressed this when he walked the earth, and now he's addressing it from the perspective of heaven. He is not a big fan of pretend. He's just not a big fan of pretend religion. It's very hurtful to him, and it's hurtful to his reputation because it makes it look like that's what Christians are or that's what Christians do. It's a false representation of the gospel it's a false representation of the power of God to change hearts so what's the remedy wake up there's five imperatives here wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of the Lord remember there's another one then what you received and heard keep it there's another one and repent there's another one if you will not wake up I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you so what's the remedy what is always the remedy when we are rebuked by the Lord when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit of a sin and God says this is you repent there's always a way back to God he's so merciful and gracious he doesn't say caught you that's it you're done he says caught you Repent. Turn your heart. Come back to me. Watch yourself. That invitation to repent, it's, it, it, it's hurtful and it's hard, but it's such an invitation of grace, true repentance. So we see these five imperatives in these verses. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember. Keep it. So what we have is important. We need to wake up sometimes. We need to wake up. The dead can't wake up. Who needs to wake up? Well, the Lord is also speaking here to the remnant that's there. Those that have not soiled their garments. So if, if these others are just pretenders, well, they just need the power of Christ to bring them. But the believers just need to wake up. They've already been brought to life, the true believers. Perhaps they've grown a little apathetic or weary. Perhaps they've slacked off a little bit in their faith. I don't know all the circumstances. But this is a a commandment or a 
encouragement from the Lord to the believers there. To the remnant, you need to wake up. You have some changing to do yourself. Be on guard against these kind of things. Consider the atmosphere that you are in and find yourself in. But they are the remnant. And that's another theme in Scripture. What would, where would we be without the remnant? These are those that God has kept for himself. In the midst of the most trying circumstances and times, when everybody else goes the opposite direction, you got the remnant. The power of God keeps them. You had the whole earth with the exception of Noah and his family. I'll keep those for myself. The rest of the earth is destroyed because the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were evil continually. And even in that puzzling passage with Lot, when Lot was surrounded by evil, Sodom and Gomorrah, and God preserved Lot. You have also, speaking of Jezebel, who put a, a death sentence on Elijah, Queen Jezebel, we learned about her. And the prophet Elijah, he was scared and he ran. Elijah, felt, Elijah thought he was the only godly one left. Everybody's against me. I got no friends. There's nobody like me left. And the Lord said, actually, there's 7,000. 7,000 that I have preserved my remnant for myself. God does this. And he does this even, not just in nations, but he does it in churches. God preserves them. A little flock of true believers. And a little flock of true believers has incredible power when they call on the name of the Lord. It's the remnant when things get terrible. It's the remnant that God turns to and empowers to change the tide of times and situations. He he honors the authenticity He honors those that are real and true with their lives and that are just open before them. So there can be fakers in church. That's nothing new. You know, there are people that, uh, for different reasons, want to fake it. Some people just want to look righteous. Um, Others can be raised in a church. And unfortunately, sometimes being raised in a church means that you learn church lingo. And you know how to say all the right things and you know how to avoid all the red flags that would, where somebody would call you out and question your faith. And yet your heart is not close to God. This is a very real possibility. It could be a possibility in this church. People raised. They know all the doctrine. They know all the right things. And everybody thinks they're a great Christian. And before God, they're a fake Because they know in their own hearts they have not surrendered. And there's a part of them that's living for the world. And this happens in churches. But God calls his people to obedience. He calls his people to repent. He calls his people to wake up and to be on guard and to keep watch and to remember these kind of things. It's the remnant that he speaks to. Reminds me of Jesus praying in the garden when he had his disciples with him. He says... Please pray with me. Keep watch. When it comes to the kingdom, we need to be praying. We need to be alert and keeping watch around the things that are going on around us, not falling asleep. He encourages them to strengthen what remains. And that's another word for coming alongside somebody. 
Now, in churches, we have people of all different strengths and degrees. And what Christians do is come along beside other Christians in their weaknesses. Or maybe it's new Christians and they need to grow in the faith. And it's the exact opposite of the theory of evolution that says the strong need to eliminate and call out the weak. And God says in the church, no, the strong need to pour themselves out for the weak, come alongside the weak, care for the weak, so that they can be strong in the Lord. It's a giving of self. And he's asking them, do that. Strengthen the remnant that's among you. Strengthen what is there. And to drive it home, he gives a stern, stern warning. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. We've heard that before. He said it before. And basically what it means is, this is your warning right here. There won't be another one. And if you do not repent now, it's not another warning come. There's not going to be a knock on the door. If you don't repent, I will come like a thief. So you have to live under the fear like, when's it going to be? Is this it? When will I face the dreaded judgment? Because there's no more warnings. And Christ's essence is saying, look, repent, or it's just a matter of time before I come for you. So they need to repent and what? Remember. Remember. Scripture constantly tells us to remember. Why? Because God has given us truth. He's given us this precious book, the Word of God. And we are to remember it. And the older you get, the harder that is. So you've got to remember it again for the first time. Remember, remember, remember what Christ has said. It's, it's knowing and remembering these words that give us life and keep us in the kingdom. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. That's what he said to the Ephesians. So he's telling his churches, remember what I have spoken to you. Remember what the kingdom's all about. Remember what your salvation is. Remember the plan I have for you and where you are going. So God gives us this truth and we need to remember it. The thing about truth is it's, if it's true, it's eternal. It doesn't change. We change, circumstances change, but when you know truth that's spoken by God, then you have it forever. You have truth in your heart that will never go away. It's always there to go back to. Remember the word of God. Now, Jesus identifies himself in verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And we've already discussed this, but there are not seven spirits of God. Don't run out of here saying that. It's a sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. As found in uh, one example, Isaiah eleven two, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon you. The spirit of wisdom. These are not different spirits. These are manifestations of the same spirit. The spirit of understanding. The spirit of counsel. The spirit of might. The spirit of knowledge. And the fear of the Lord. So lastly, we always have a promise that the Lord gives to his churches. So what do you promise a people like this? What do you promise the remnant or the church that is left? Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Well, we always know the way you overcome is you repent of that particular sin that the Lord is calling out. There are two things wrong with this church. One, they've been misnamed. They have a reputation that they do not own, a reputation that they cannot fill. And that is because, too, they have soiled their garments. They're living in sin in some kind of way, and they have not repented of it. And so the promise here is white garments, not soiled garments, white garments. White garments can stand for victory. It can also always stand for purity. That is, you can be righteous. You can be clean when you repent. God offers the forgiveness that leads to righteousness. Jesus died on a cross and he forgave us of our sins. That wipes out our sins. But we still need something else because just the forgiveness and the death on the cross brings us back to the garden, right? So now we're, we're forgiven. What we need is righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ. He clothes us with his righteousness. So now not only are we forgiven, but we have the righteousness that we need to stay in the presence of God. That's a promise that God gives us. And then this name. He'll put your name in the book of life. Symbolically speaking, there's a book of life. And we get that here from Revelation. If you are a true believer, your name will be in it. And he will say your name and speak you before the Father and before the angels in heaven. The names of fakers will not be in there. Just the name of those who got real with God. Those who embraced the truth of God. Not just about God, but about themselves. Before God. This is where I stand. And I fall short. I recognize you as the one and only true God. And you're righteous and holy. And if I, you've given me an olive branch or leaf to, to repent... And to be restored to you. It's those that recognize their state and their need of God. So one last word as I close. Often Jesus uses the current geopolitical situation, cultural situation, um, geography and so forth when he addresses a church. So Sardis was in a rich valley in in the uh, valley of Lydia there. They were at the foot of a mountain. It was a very fertile area. And they also had, uh, they were um, also on a plateau, a plateau that had steep cliffs. So those at the foot of the mountain, it was, it was leveled out for their city, but then there were these steep, steep cliffs uh, that made this city nearly impenetrable. And that's one of the reasons that King Croesus was able to... Uh, maintain his reign and rule. He had the money. He could hire people to fight for him. But eventually he was conquered. So you ask yourself, how can something, this citadel that's impenetrable, be conquered? Well, it's because there are places on the walls or the cliffs that are so impenetrable that you don't, put even, you don't even bother to put guards or watchmen there. Now, unfortunately, the enemy if they're smart enough, will think to themselves, we got to get up that wall some kind of way because it will be unguarded and that was the fall of their kingdom. 
And the idea is to this church. You may think that you're impenetrable. You may think you have everything going for you. You may think you have all the resources and that nothing can get to you. And he says, keep watch. Keep watch. Don't make assumptions that just because this good thing is happening or this good thing is happening that you are not prone or you will not fall prey to the enemy. So he says, church, remnant, keep watch. Watch your life, as Paul said to Timothy, and watch your doctrine, but keep watch. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.